Hello there, space fans, and welcome to a new episode of the Supercluster Podcast. This is Robin. I'm here with Jamie and Chris today. Hello. It's really rare that uh, all three of us are available to tape this podcast at the same time. So it's a real pleasure. There's a few reasons where the three of us are getting together today for this pod to talk about some updates, talk about some Supercluster stuff, talk about some stuff going on in the space world, some updates, always craziness happening in the space industry. First and foremost, I think today we are taping on Monday, March 1st, and we are in the general one year since the pandemic started. Oh, man. Um, Right? Man, I can't uh, remember. I'm trying to think back. What was the last podcast we recorded where we were actually in a You know what? We'll go back and search. Yeah, we'll go back and search for that. uh, Yeah, I think it might be Dylan Taylor, actually. It could be. And we're having Dylan Taylor on the podcast uh, next week. Dylan is the CEO of Voyager Space Holdings and one of the founders of Space for Humanity. Uh, We're looking forward to having him on again. We also did a few podcasts talking about the pandemic. I remember Chris and I did one. We did an episode about Star Trek with Swatna back last year. And then we, Chris and I did a, a podcast talking about what's happening in the space world as the outbreak happened. I recorded that podcast in a closet. Because I was on the move already. Um, And we were all sort of realizing that the next year of our lives was going to be very different. Mm. I think around this time, I was in California. You know, we were seeing what's happening. And I I had to go over to California to, um, you know, meet with our friends at SpaceX. And I visited our friends at Virgin Orbit. Um, If you're following Supercluster. You saw that we debuted our first collaboration with Virgin Orbit last week, a great video about air launches and uh, why they're so cool. And uh, so check that out on Virgin Orbit's YouTube if you haven't. Um, So I visited their factory. I visited SpaceX. I visited the James Webb Space Telescope. All within 36 hours on my last night, the mayor gave a press conference saying that they are locking down the city that morning, the next morning. I flew out of uh, <laughs> I flew out of California, stopped in Houston really quick. Then I flew into Cape Canaveral. I flew into and Florida. Immediately drove to my house. Then I immediately drove over to where you see Chris is right now. Chris and I had some work to do. Obviously, you know, space soldiered on uh, when that all happened. We were still covering a mission. Chris, that was CRS twenty. Gosh, yeah. 20 or 21? What are those two? It, would, it was 21. It was 20 because it was 20. the final one of the, uh, of the original. The original Dragon. dragon. Yes. That's right. So it was the final flight of the Cargo V1 Dragon, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. During that mission, uh, that's when we started realizing that things were going bad around the United States. And we were preparing for the worst, basically. Yeah, it was definitely when, when what experts had been saying. Right, right, that once right. it's here, it was going to spread. Do exactly what it did. It was mm-hmm. when that was really starting to, to hit home. Right. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's a lot to be said about this last year, but I think in terms of space exploration, things sort of carried on. DM two happened in May. The return to return of human spaceflight to American soil with the launch of Bob and Doug on a DM two mission, and then we had Crew One which was the first operational mission of SpaceX to the space station. And um, three Mars missions, global Mars missions. Yeah. You know, it's 
we had uh, the United Arab Emirates, we had China, and uh, as most people know, Perseverance has landed safely on the Martian surface and the Jezero crater. Mm-hmm. Um, so quick congratulations. Three for three. Three for three. Congratulations Impressive. to all spacefarers around the world and all those who are involved in those projects at any level. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing that that still occurred, given our circumstances here on Earth. Perseverance, we all were, were online for that, watching it live. Mm-hmm. Chris, uh, can you describe fair. to me your, your emotions, your reactions to Percy touching down on Mars? <laughs> very much a similar reaction that I had to being one of the very few who was there watching it launch in right. person. Watching it land from my office without anybody to share in the excitement and share in the exhilaration. And, you know, I mean, thinking, thinking like if, if this would have landed and, and it wouldn't have been a pandemic, what would we have done? I mean, yeah, I still probably would have been in my office covering it for the live stream, but maybe right. I would have been down with a colleague, yeah. right? We'd, there, there would have been parties. I mean, we would have gone out afterward and like shared in the happiness of that. And we still got to share in the happiness of it watching the team, but it was yeah. still very different. And very, I'll tell very you, different. launches are shockingly different yeah. without everyone there. But it, it is nice that it's carried on because I think above, above the scientific achievements and, and the scientific advancements that all of these missions continue to give us, which is, of course, their first and foremost role and, 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 and what they're designed to do, right. it's, it's that uplifting moment of just sheer hope and joy and happiness, you know, like you're watching something leave the planet that's going to do something cool. You're watching something in our orbit or land on another planet that you know is, you know, has a decent shot of still being operational when humans follow it. That is incredible. And it provides a wonderful moment of collectiveness, I I think, in, in the best sense of that word, because none of the nations that sent specifically to to the mars missions none of the nations that sent it there right did it on their own right, right. we we acknowledge the united arab emirates and china and the us right as the as the individuals that led those missions but they were in partnership with everyone around the world it's um, also a sharing knowledge too chris sometimes yeah. you don't have to lend an actual tool or or even anything sometimes that body of knowledge is is communal Exactly. I mean, and, and, and look no further than, you know, uh, of the three that, that, that just went, they'll all do that. But really the one best suited for that is Alamal, right. the probe from the United Arab Emirates, because it's the first true weather satellite of Mars. And they have made no bones about it that it's not just for their space program. It's to support anyone's mission. Right. Now, um, and that's amazing, right? Yes. That that's what that exploration is. Jamie, you and I cut a video with the uh, Emirates team. We asked a really grim question. We said, what, what are your thoughts on the mission failing? Um, mm-hmm. As you know, us, we try to make things weird and morbid. Um, but they, they gave a really positive answer. They actually liked the question. But um, Jamie, what were, first off, what, what was their take on that question? And what's your take on landing on Mars during what is become some of the, you know, some of our darkest times here in this country. Like how do, how does an American or anyone consolidate these two events? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, their response to that, I think was the same as you would get from a lot of scientists, I hope. Um, and, and in my own experience, this has been true that 
if they had a failure, they would try again, that, that they would learn from it, they would take the data, they would go and, and that's part of the process and that they were prepared for that. You know, so I think that if you ask people who were involved in the Perseverance land, landing, you'd probably get a very similar response that they, while they absolutely dread having things go wrong, they also are prepared for it. They have plans for it. And it's part of the process. Things go wrong all the time. So in terms of your second question, just like, how do we square this with the way the world has been going? I mean, one thing I will say without getting into any kind of particular politics is that there is perhaps no greater moment for there to be a huge flag waving for the power of science and critical thinking and research and development and all that. And as a testament to just what can be done if we set a target and we all work together and we just take the best answer every step of the way without regard to who it came from or how crazy it is or how many sky cranes and parachutes it has on it, then we will get to where we're going. So to me, it was uplifting on that level of just like, we can do that. We can do it. We did it again. There was a background of routineness in those seven minutes of terror, which was amazing to me because I remember how it felt to totally not know if they could do it. And now I had the experience of wondering, well, can they do it again? Because it's very different to think that those two feelings are very, very different, you know, do it versus do it again. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was thrilling. The other thing um, that, struck me about it was how much it didn't i've gotten to a point where i don't notice the masks i don't notice the remoteness i don't like this has all been so routine to us now that i wasn't watching it thinking wow what a weird scene of science what a different thing i was just watching it thinking yeah this is this okay yeah they're landing and and that's something that i think will be will take some getting over i think there's going to be the opposite happening where when everyone's together we're going to feel nervous much longer than we should and we'll be instinctually putting the masks back on but yeah i'm far past the point where i didn't even notice anyone was wearing a mask that's just how people dress you make an excellent point i didn't until you literally just said it that people were wearing masks on the on the feet huh Mm. you know it was very different watching uh the landing at home obviously i would have loved to been at jpl or in colorado or last year i don't know if it was last year or two years ago when NASA Insight landed on Mars, I went out to Times Square. Jack, our audio engineer at Supercluster, him and I used to tape the podcast in our podcast studio at the office. And uh, we taped one day and then we left to go to Times Square mm. to be with all the fans out there. And NASA had a, a couple of representatives. There was swag being given out. We gave out swag because, you know, we were out there with stuff and I mean, that would have been perseverance. No doubt. That would have been perseverance Mm -hmm. if we were back in a regular world and that's what was happening. Um, It would have been a Times Square moment, wherever your Times Square is locally. Yeah. That's where people gather. I mean, NASA has a nice history of of Times Square interaction Mm -hmm. with Martian landings. Um, Yeah. yeah. I should point out that NASA did broadcast it on the NASDAQ screen again. They took some photos of it, which is cool. I don't know if there was crowds out there. I wasn't out there. But the Empire State Building also, which is a little bit further from Times Square, was lit up red the two nights before mm-hmm. the landing, which is mm-hmm. really, really cool. You know, when you're, we're always looking for national attention on these missions because these missions are they're for everyone, not mm-hmm. just, you know, I like to say it's for the world. Uh, and American taxpayers should be tuning into the stuff <laughs> that they're paying for. Uh, I believe in that um, to see if it goes right. But I did miss that sort of 
tailgating atmosphere of like, you know, being out there and waiting for yeah. it to happen. So. One, one thing I appreciated was uh, that same spirit that the UAE took and lighting up the Burj Khalifa mm-hmm. and projecting, mm. you know, part, parts of the story of the mission right. onto it. Cause it, it, it was exactly what you, you, you were saying there and a huge symbol of hope. And, but at the same point, it was weird not to see a bunch of crowds right. watching it, so. you know, <laughs> Yeah, for, even for even difference. remotely, you know, obviously it's not something that you can like watch shit land into. Right, right, so, right. Someday we'll get there. I, I want bleacher seats on Mars for one of these. But the um, but even yeah, just the idea of watching it on a screen in a group seemed so inevitable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in a different time that you would at least be sharing it in some way, at least having a party with little cupcakes with a rover on them or something. You something, know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that yeah. was the thing that Krispy Kreme missed. Why, oh, could, yeah. why could the donut not have a little rover? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. have to and, say um, that I love the spirit, but mm-hmm. I would I would say that perhaps a donut lacks the resolution to accurately represent Mars. And <laughs> a drawing of a rover would have been easier, but I either way, good good move, um, donut what, shop. Um, if you guys yeah. missed it, if our listeners missed it, Krispy Kreme did a special edition Mars donut, which mm. was a hit in some places and not a hit in certain areas. I think depending on how granular they got with the, the design of the donut. <laughs> yeah, um, it, I mean, it's almost it's almost like, right? yeah, I mean, it really came down to the particular donut artiste because you know in, the, in the promo materials, there was quite a, a work done. You know, you know what? A, Photoshop a, is always going to look better. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know? absolutely. It's hey, always as, I, <laughs> as, as I joke, I made a nerdy planetary joke on Twitter about it. So I'll say it again here. You can't expect all of your donuts to round themselves under the force of their own gravity. Some of them <laughs> true. have to That's be dwarf true. donuts. Yes. Some of them <laughs> just can't meet the yes. standard. Yeah. That's a great point. No, That's Chris. true. Um, um, and this is why we need perseverance. Someday, right. all right, we'll have the technology for donuts to accurately <laughs> yeah, represent planets. You, you know. Do you guys think? I wanted to echo a sentiment here from uh, David W. Brown. As you know, he wrote the uh, the book called The Mission about Europa Clipper. It's out right now. It's a huge hit. It's an incredible book. An excerpt uh, of wishes available on, on supercluster.com. supercluster.com. David also wrote a reaction to the Mars landing for Supercluster. And it was a lot of it was about the hope that came along with the mission. And he does talk about perseverance being the robot that passes the baton to a human. He doesn't use those words, but that's the general mm. um, sort of idea that, you know, humans is they're coming up next. And this one of the missions that is paving the road for that. Um, do you guys agree with that sentiment? Hmm. I do. I, yeah, a tentative yes. Uh and and that tentativeness comes from I don't know what some other nations are going to surprise me with in the interim, mm-hmm. but yeah, all signs point to the the last major robot landing that is not in some way preparatory for a human landing, you know. Right. I would maybe that. Maybe they'll be like we land a big old thing that's like churning yeah. out some nice oxygen for us and then it Yeah, maybe they rolls land like, over there and builds right. a little hab or something, but right. in general, in broad strokes, I'm with them on that. Yeah, I think the I think an important caveat to that is it's the last of the U.S. line because um, there are there are other rover there are not there are other missions planned. Um, yeah. China Orbiters has the landing and, and the rover yeah. that will yeah. happen yeah. in May. And space um, programs going really ESA, fast compared yes. to history. Yeah, right. it, exactly. But the, I think the overall point is correct. Perseverance is the last major laboratory that will be hands off 
from humanity. And I mean, I, I kind of said it earlier, jokingly, like, you know, it landed and there's a better than decent chance that it will still be functional when humans get there. I mean, the same is true for curiosity <laughs> at this point. Yeah. But, but it is the, the next real step. And we see it coming with SpaceX in, in Boca Chica. The next step is humans. And it's gonna happen when a lot of people think we're not ready. But I think it's gonna, gonna happen. It's gonna happen before I'm, people know it. I'm really yeah. hoping <laughs> that sample return. They'll be working on sample return. They'll mm -hmm. be developing it. They'll be funding it. They'll be debating it, and all of a sudden, it'll become a human right. that just picks up the capsule and runs <laughs> off I back think, to the I ship. Think it's, because you yeah. know, like I, I would love for that to be the way that story ends. Look, this I, is going to be down with patting perseverance on the head. Right. Yeah, you got to fulfill yeah. the the XKCD. Yeah, you know, the comics, <laughs> yeah, the comics right? and finally yeah. bring them home or at least go visit them. And, you know, yeah, we didn't you know, forget about you, buddy. The way I look at the space industry, you got to look at the business and the contracts that are available to bid on. And I think it's going to happen that way. Um, we're looking at the commercial crew program right now. NASA needs people. NASA needs a vehicle and an operator to take humans to the space station. So there's a contract for that that people can bid on. The next thing is. Well, NASA needs a vehicle and an operator to take humans to lunar orbit. Great, let's have a contract for that. The next thing is, well, NASA needs a contract for landing humans on the surface. That will grow into NASA needs an operator and a vehicle to land humans on Mars. Yep. It's not going to be this like, you know, the movies, Hollywood really love to dress up those missions, but it's going to be someone needing something and someone providing something. It'll be NASA needing a service and space, SpaceX having the technology to provide that service. And that, that will lead to humans to Mars, in my opinion. But I do see Perseverance looking at the biology of Mars and looking at the history of it, helping us understand what the, the makeup of the world is, how we'll have to, will definitely inform on how we build our habitats, how we make fuel, how we do all sorts of, you know, pushing the boundary of science on the planet once we're there will be a blank canvas. You know, we're no longer going to have this robotic intermediary. Humans are going to be able to look and feel and do all mm -hmm. the cool things that we want to do. So I do see perseverance as leading that charge, looking for the origins of life on, on Mars and, you know, deploying that helicopter is going to be really exciting. Oh, it really is. Yeah, it really so. is. As, as is, I think, if we're talking about this, right, the natural extension of it is they put the, the plaque on Perseverance of right. the, the, family of the, yeah. of oh, the, the family, family. plaque. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, so the next right. one will have a human. Right included in that oh that's, yeah that's, that's amazing cool yeah and we already yeah. have the design for little pixely human guy from space history oh yeah <laughs> i'm in there you know <laughs> but yeah to wrap this mars conversation please check out david w brown's article for supercluster it's a beautifully written essay it made it to the front page of reddit the other day got something like forty thousand upvotes and two point something thousand comments it was really amazing to see how excited people are about finally getting humans in the direction of Mars, at least, um, mm. and start talking about that. There are a few things about space exploration that really get people going and fired up. Landing a humans on a new planet is definitely one of them. And I think that, uh, ju just a last thought on that, one of the things that's so great about these rovers is that amongst all of the things that we launch into space, they are perhaps the easiest to anthropomorphize. Right. You know, So short of putting a human there, Putting a rover there really gets our hearts going. You know, yeah, like yeah. they managed to do it a little bit with Rosetta and Philae and that whole thing. And you can do it 
with a craft that's just a little, you know, canister with some solar wings. But yeah. when that thing can drive around and it's got little camera looking eyes and, you know, that's really when we can, we can see Johnny five on Mars. Oh, Jamie, I don't know if we did this already, but we have to add Percy to the astronaut oh, database. Hooray. That's yeah. so exciting. Oh, yes. That's yes. true. That is yeah. a robot astronaut fully. It got yeah. in a spacecraft, flew to another planet, and got out to got drive up. around. Right. Yeah. 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 So now Percy's going to be added. Jamie now will get that done. Mm-hmm. Chris, I know we've been monitoring. Uh, NASA broadcasted a spacewalk yesterday. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the spacewalks? I know that we've been updating, uh, Supercluster has been updating our astronaut database. Victor had went out. Mm-hmm. Kate had gone out. And did Mike go out yesterday? No, uh, just the two of them. Just two, uh, and, okay. and Mike and Suichi were inside doing the, um, what's right. called inter- intravehicular activity work. Right. Uh, so basically, mm-hmm. big fancy NASA term for supporting them outside. That's <laughs> awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, th- this was a pretty cool spacewalk. So the previous two, uh, the, the prior month in February, had been dedicated to sort of finishing up little odds and end tasks that had been outstanding uh, mm. outside of the station. And then this one really kicked off a new series of work. So the gigantic solar arrays, the really iconic solar arrays of the station are really, really old. The oldest set of them is tw- are 21 years old and the youngest set were launched 12 years ago. Wow. Um, so-, so one of them is older than the operational space station. In a way, yes, yeah. because... <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> well, we I mean, actually- everything... We Everything actually, in space is based on technology right. that much farther back because you had to approve it for space, which is why. So they're not even modern from when they were launched. They're modern exactly. from when the design spec was put out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So basically, if you if you look at what could those arrays have produced maximum, right? And what are they producing now? They've degraded in what they're capable of doing, which was expected. Right. And the previous line of thought was that we would just simply replace the solar arrays because we had the shuttle to take up these huge sets of arrays, right? And then we got rid of the shuttle and then we were like, huh, well, (laughs) this is still a problem. So what are we going to do? So Boeing and NASA came up with this pretty cool solution to use state-of-the-art new rollout solar arrays. So new flexible material, they're packed in canisters, they can launch inside the trunk of SpaceX cargo dragons, Mm -hmm. and the robotic arm can just reach up inside the trunk, take them out, and then bring them out to where they are, and then astronauts will attach them. And basically, they'll attach to a portion of the station that's no longer needed because they're the old canisters that the original arrays were protected in during launch. So they'll mount these new arrays out there. But in order to do that, they needed some more brackets and some more attach fittings. And that's what the crews are going to now spend the next few years doing is going from site to site and installing these brackets and braces before the new round of solar arrays come up. And then they install the brackets, the solar arrays come up, they install the brackets, the solar arrays come up. And that's how they do it. And basically, this will get the station back to peak power generating performance. Yep. Are the new solar panels of of lesser square footage than the ones that they replace in order yes. to generate the same power? Because they got like decades of efficiency. Yeah, it's better gains. technology. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're actually yeah. gonna they're actually gonna be even more efficient than that. So there's no real reason to get rid of the original arrays. You can basically put these new arrays because they're smaller over top of them, but still leave portions of the original arrays out there. To generate power. So right. It's yeah. Be voltage is voltage, even if it's less than it should be. Yeah. Exactly. And and that's how they're going to do it. So the the new arrays that are going up won't completely take over the power load. They'll handle about like 
70% of it, and the original arrays will handle about 30% of it. And this will, in part, allow for the commercial expansion of the station with the Axiom space station modules that will start launching here uh, in the next couple of years. Hmm. I wonder what the mass implications are of adding these rollout solar panels to the thing. It's a good question. Um, relatively negligible compared to the overall mass of the of the overall complex. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, they're they're basically two dimensional. Don't shoot yeah. me, but you know what I mean. Like they're they don't have a lot of volume to put to, to put mass in. Exactly, and and if you think of it this way too, right? There's a limited amount that the cargo dragons can take up, right? That the Falcon Nine can actually oh, right. haul sure. into orbit, and that dragon <laughs> can then finish getting the rest of the way to the station. So they're light enough that they can be launched on cargo dragons in the trunk, mm. while the rest of the cargo dragon takes thousands of kilograms of supplies as well. Which, um, so it, they're really lightweight. I mean, they're they're really really cool new additions. And so, and yeah, the the idea, you know, I I go back and forth between thinking of the ISS as a space station and a spaceship because you know it's a little bit of both and right. it has features of both but this is when i really like to think of it as a spaceship because the idea that a spaceship is being upgraded that idea alone that a singular space object is like oh no no you will attach a better thing of technology to it is really exciting and sci-fi you know like that that's going by guys how many episodes of uh tng or that they had to oh we're coming to replace a Right, like yeah, yeah. A, a nacelle or something, and then yes. like it turns out to be like a spy or something. You know, it's, exactly. There's yeah. always two layers to that story. But we have a new space toaster, but <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. tribbles in it. Oh, right. God. Yeah. oh. <laughs> it, it always starts off innocent. It's like, oh, um, Riker, we have uh, you know, the USS whatever dropping off this new part for the engine. And then they get there and it's like Sulaban or somebody and like yeah, and like yeah. I, it just or it all the repair yeah. robots become sentient and then we can't use them right. anymore because right. that's slavery, you know. <laughs> and it's just it just hard gets too living, dramatic. Living right. with ethics in the cosmos, man. <laughs> Which Luckily, wears, wears you out. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love how Discovery just so, slight tangent. I love how Discovery just sidestepped it this season. Spoiler right. alerts, where they were just like, "No, we're just going to anthropomorphize them and give yeah. them names, and that's going to yeah. answer that question for us." Right. <laughs> yeah, Chris. So, when are yes. we expecting the Shannon, Soichi, Michael, and Victor crew back on Earth? Because that was yeah. supposed to be a six-month mission. So roundabout. So, so these things are always. Um, yeah, they're always put out like, there publicly as six months, but right. they end up being five or seven or six um, based on like what the needs of the station end up right. being and what your next vehicle in line to launch is. The bottom line is right right now it's roughly end of April, beginning of May. The Crew Two mission is going to launch first before the mm -hmm. Crew One flight comes back, right. so they can do what's called a direct handover, where the four new crew members will go up and directly interact with the four crew members that they're replacing. And there's, it's a more efficient way of like handing over duties on the station. And that'll come back. But Crew 2 has sort of this nebulous date of April 20th right now. But of course, we're more than, we're basically two months out from that. Which means and, it's definitely going to move. Yeah. And even NASA in the original, like, hey, it's going to be April 20th. We're still like, eh, that's the current date. It still might change. Because remember, a lot of what they're having to do right now is look at how the Dragon on Orbit has done, mm -hmm. but get comfortable with how it's done because they have to say the next one is certified to launch before that one comes back. And so, before they get um, the complete flight set of data. So, And that's, a, that's an element that, NASA, that is new to NASA, that they have not had in human spaceflight before of launching the next human mission when the previous one is still up. 
couple hours ago, we were just on the first briefing for this mission. And uh, that's where it was stated that it would definitely move a few days off of 420. Right. Um, um, there wasn't any specific reasoning, but like you said, there's we're two months out. There's a million reasons that could be moved. And that's expected from all of us. Yeah. Is Elon Musk happy that it's not going to be on 420? <laughs> Absolutely not. And um, evidence of this, our friend Michael Sheets, uh, the space reporter for CNBC, did tweet this update from the press conference we were all at. Uh, yeah. And Elon um, replied to him, <clears throat> ahem, literally ahem, meaning he doesn't want that 420 date to change. Um, for entertaining entertainment purposes, I would like also for that date to hold for that mission. Um, just because well, I mean, more, uh, you know, more than anything else by far, Elon yeah. Musk is a marketing <laughs> professional. He yes. Is a, yeah. a marketer. And, He's not really any of the other things he claims totally, to be, to, but totally. that thing he is. Um, <laughs> so yeah, of course he wants to be on. Totally. He wants uh, all the peripheral, everything to happen. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Which to, to be fair, I get it. I do. Yeah, get it's it. not bad. Yeah. I mean, that's not a criticism. Do it, man. Yeah. I mean, However, the, the thing that doesn't care about advertising yeah. <laughs> is, right. is, is probably what the driving factor of this is, which what, isn't, physics, as some people weather. are going to say, right. Orbital dynamics. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's not NASA going, we don't want it to launch on 420, right? Missions, missions can launch on 420. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the date on the calendar, right? What's actually going to drive this is there's a Russian crew rotation flight that is scheduled for roughly the same time period. There mm. is the um, upcoming Starliner uncrewed flight test, which is right now in early April. And the, the, it's just a very busy period on board the station. And with that, you have to sort of time things so that the, the Russian Soyuz carrying people can get there within three to six hours. And to do right. that, you have to move, literally move the space station's orbit. So all of those things kind of have to fit into the larger puzzle piece. And if that means it ends up being April 22nd or April 21st, because that's what's needed for the crew, that's right. what you end up getting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're still a while away from that. Supercluster will have that launch tracker up soon once we really lock down that date. Obviously, 420 is not going to be the date. But on Crew 2, um, which will be the second operational mission of Dragon, we'll have two NASA astronauts and one ESA astronaut and one JAXA astronaut. Right, Chris? Yes, indeed. So it's going to be Shane Kimbrough for NASA, Megan MacArthur for NASA. And who are the other two astronauts, Chris? Yes, so uh, it's Koichi Wakata from mm. the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency and Tomas Pasquet from nice. the European Space Agency are mm. rounding out that crew. Oh, I so recognize Tom that name. He's a veteran. It, it, yes, I'm not sure yes. who else is a veteran on this are. flight. They both, oh, they both are. Okay, actually, cool. all, actually all it's, an all veteran, yeah, it's an all-veteran all flight. flight. Yes. All-veteran flight, cool. However, it will be Megan's first trip to the space station because her veteran flight is the final shuttle flight to the Hubble telescope. And oh, wow. One, oh, wow. Of the, one of the coolest things I think that she has to her name and as far as we know, Will, she is the last person to actually send a command to humanly interact with the Hubble telescope. She sent the command from the shuttle's flight deck to release Hubble back into orbit oh. from the shuttle arm on that well, flight. Well, you, you so, know what that means. Now Hubble is imprinted on her. She's the last and human. She is, That's a sci-fi yeah, story. Hubble uh, it <laughs> thinks that she, and rightfully so, she is Hubble's mother. Right. And when Hubble, you know, whatever happens next, if it deorbits, if something goes wrong, we got to get her on the horn and talk Hubble down. This, this has Star Trek important. one. This is Star Trek, the motion picture. 
except oh, yeah. without oh, Voyager, yes. it's Hubble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, all jokes aside, though, that is that is pretty cool. That's an like, amazing. That is, that's a really nice, like, romantic. By the way, I'm an astronaut, thinking, but you know. also I'm the last human to talk to Hubble directly. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's double the bragging rights. And I'm yeah, like, right. I mean, well, and, and to <laughs> and you made me picture that floating away moment right. is so powerful because mm-hmm. you know that like no one's coming back to this probably ever you know right. maybe like a future space historian if we have extra fuel to spare or something right. but it is very likely that no one will be that close to it again unless someone can convince spacex to do some type of a mission with a starship it's not yeah i mean we've gotten so much out of hubble personally i'd love it if we could go get it and bring it back and we should put it, it should in, be yeah. in a museum you or know. somewhere yeah, yeah true i mean it yeah it feels to me and maybe this is a, a whole tangent but it seems to me that we're entering a, a phase where maybe maybe there are times when doing like what we're doing on the space station is going to make sense for old things that were never meant to be upgraded because mm-hmm. someday it won't be prohibited i don't know what day that may be a ridiculous day upon which to make this decision but it won't be prohibitively expensive to fly up there and jam a new lens and camera in because we've got like nanobots or whatever, but the mass of getting a framework, a structure, the sort of body of the camera of the telescope, that would still be a challenge just for cost basis. So maybe a little satellite full of nanobots comes up and just replaces the functional elements or something, you know? Well, which, I mean, and we did it five times with Hubble, with the shuttle. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that's why I say like a part of me wants like, hey, if Starship can go get it and bring it back and put it in a museum, that's great. But also if Starship can go up there, um, can we just send humans to keep upgrading it? Because if we can keep upgrading it, it's a brand new telescope every time we leave it behind. Yeah, it's not all outdated. Like the again like certain metal parts aren't going to go out of style you still need like a thing to hold a thing you know so why reinvent (laughs) the wheel you know i mean if we if we had sent a car all i don't know why this metaphor is coming up if you send a car to the top of mount everest and it breaks you repair it you don't bring a new car to the top of mount everest (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah um that's yeah all right (laughs) you get my point (laughs) yeah, yeah well since we're on the topic of starship let's talk a little bit about what's going down in Boca Chica, our photographer down there, Devin, sent back a f- some photos this week. And I was looking through them and I was like, is that the Boston Dynamics dog just mm. hanging out down there? And I, I looked back and I saw that Jack Bayer yeah. for NSF had captured it a couple of weeks ago. And just a really funny thing. I'm a when black it's out there doing fan. It's trotting. Like, yeah, it's, it's just really- out there. If you know what I'm talking about, you guys always see these. Uh, viral videos out of uh boston where there's a robotic dog doing things that are terrifying elon has purchased one of these for boca chica the starship facility Uh, i don't exactly know what it's doing there but um starship is getting ready to launch again it is indeed and we're really excited um we are up to prototype 10 right there was a static fire last week and then they swapped out an engine they did another static fire, right, Chris? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And now we're looking at today's Monday, March 1st. And as of right now, we're looking at Wednesday as potentially the earliest launch window for that. Chris, what are you Correct. hearing on the NSF side? Like, how, how is SpaceX feeling about this mission, this launch? 
Yeah, um, I, it, it it seems to be you know the, the the largest question now comes down to the biggest change that they made after SN eight mm-hmm. um, or sorry SN nine, which had the um, Raptor engine reignition failure during right. the flip and burn landing. So they're going to relight all three of them now to provide redundancy, and then right. once they have all three up and running and stable, they'll shut one of them down and just go with the two that are the most efficient. I, you know, until Elon sort of gives the the, the percentage number, um, I think they're a little more confident in this one, just because having three engines come back up is going to give you a lot of wiggle room. A little bit more control too. Exactly. And, you know, we didn't hear anything from Elon or from SpaceX that the pressurization issue that got them on the first one recurred on nine. Right. So it looks like that was solved. So this is, you know, those it's those like, okay, you found the problem, you fixed it. Another problem came up, you fix it. Now let's go. Um, I think the biggest stressor though for for everyone involved, and it's hard to remember this sometimes, is that this is very much a developmental vehicle using developmental engines. You know, right. yeah, the Raptors and the vehicle are- Every bit is a prototype. This is not yes. a prototype being powered- <laughs> by an engine that's been in use. This is no. <laughs> a, a prototype engine and a prototype spacecraft being tested at the same time. We all need being to remember built, that. Being <laughs> built outdoors, like in a novel arrangement, a, a novel right. arrangement, yes. both of, of mechanisms and materials. Mm-hmm. So we don't in, even know if it ever will work. I mean, I'm confident, but you yeah, know what right. I mean? It's not like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We just built a longer car you know it's like it's a it's a it's a whole the concept has been in all of our drawings and in our imaginations for quite a while but for no 50 one, years at least yeah. yeah i mean the last time people got something like this to work oh geez chris you'll have to help me out there was that triangular pyramid spacecraft that could do vertical takes off take off and landings oh, Ven- and venture star right venture yeah star. yeah there yeah. was some really good um proof of concepts but yeah, this is new. This is like this a is whole new. other well, kind of level, you know. Well, honestly, honestly, like th- this is the equivalent of like novelization that the shuttle was in 1981 when people were looking at it, going, "It's a, it's a what? Yeah, like it's yeah. a plane. It's a plane mounted to, to a rocket. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but but it's 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 that equivalent of of like, wow, that could be huge, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, it also wait, wait. falls into one of those categories of stuff people said goodbye to in the past, kind of like yeah. landing your first stage, right, you know, right, right. that like maybe, <laughs> hey, if you can figure out the physics and the economics, more power to you. But yeah, single stage for the entire mission is a is a challenge. It's a real you know, new, it, <laughs> crazy it's a, challenge. It, yeah. It's a real and, and you can see it because they don't even get there with Starship. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 The thing that you got to, you know, you got to give SpaceX credit for is you're not starting this from scratch. I think a lot of the the data and the information and what they've learned by bringing home Falcon is going into this, into Starship, especially in its propulsive landing. A lot of what they know about Dragon and its 20 plus missions to the space station is going into Starship. So, you know, it's not like they're, they're, they're building a prototype. But the science they're using, the data they're using, this is proven stuff, at least about, to a certain degree. What about the lack of an abort system? How do we how do we feel about that particular detail? So I I, I think I'm on a very unique side of this in the overall industry, where I say I totally understand why NASA wants it on the Falcon 9, why NASA wants it on Starliner, why Soyuz mm-hmm. has it. I mean, we saw we saw with Soyuz you know, a couple of years ago, exactly why we want that on there when the right. abort system worked perfectly and, and saved those two people's yeah. lives. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, we, and 
and that's fine when we're not talking about routine space. But if if we're serious, if we're honestly serious about this, right, your faith in the system to work has to align with airline flights today, where when you buy the ticket, you understand the risk that you are accepting, right? We saw this just, just last week per the recording, right? With the United flight out of Denver, right? Mm-hmm. That lost an engine shortly after liftoff, uh, liftoff yeah. shortly after takeoff yeah. and still had redundancy to come back, right? Yeah, that's it, kind of the key detail is it had absolutely no problem just running on the other engine. It wasn't even outside of routine. It was scary, right. but it wasn't outside right. of routine operation, which is like, okay. But that's what we have to that. get to with Starship. That's the yeah. mentality. The redundancy yeah. in the mm. system. And right. hey, if your first stage has an issue, like a catastrophic issue, A, that has to be so rare, right? And B, if it can fail in a way where your second stage can react in time to separate and fire its engines to get away, and then Starship can figure out where to go and how to fly itself, right? right? But ultimately, you need to get the system safe enough because here's where you don't have an abort capability. You don't have an abort capability at Mars. You don't have an abort capability when your Starship is having to aero break into orbit around a planet. The system needs to be built in such a way that you would be shocked when it failed like we are now with airliners. Here's a, um, here's and a it's going to take a while to get there, but I think that's the shift we need. I think you're absolutely right. However, to put that in perspective in terms of numbers, um, oh, I, know. I yeah. just did a quick you know, <laughs> Google here. As of 2019, and of course, this would change year to year. It would change over the time span. But by orders of magnitude, it will be correct. The death rate for flying on a plane is one fatal crash for every 3.7 million flights. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that would probably lead to more than one death. But if you extrapolate right. out, it probably still means that like, you know, yeah, one one crash for 3.7 million. And then how many shuttles did we lose in 100 and something right. flights? You know, it really is a different class of science to solve the problems of space flight versus it is. Uh, plane flight. Not that we won't yeah. get there. And I think I agree that that's why the abort, I mean, there's no abort system on a plane because it would be completely impractical to design something that would save everyone's life. But more importantly, as you said, it's not really needed as sad as we would all be to, to be in a plane crash or to lose someone in a plane crash, it's not really right. needed when your accident rate is that low. Right. And two exactly. big points that I want to make here is that I think Elon Musk and Gwen Shotwell have always used this talking point over the last 10 years that space travel has to become as regular as airplane travel. And that Starship was meant to operate like an airplane mm-hmm. in terms of like mm-hmm. the safety expectation the consistency and the rapid reuse of it. it. Meaning a plane lands, a mechanic does a once over, and then it flies again in a couple of hours. Yeah. That's what they need from Starship. Number right. two, they've actually gone as far as saying that they want Starship to be an airplane. You know what I mean? They want Earth Starship. point to point. Right. Yeah. They yeah. want My- Starship to be able to take humans from New York Harbor to Shanghai in 47 minutes or whatever it is. But that that's what they're thinking. Like, okay, if we're going to make Starship into an airplane, why not just let it be an airplane at the yeah. end of the day? You I know mean, what I there mean? Are, there are several, you know, and I'm not the first one to make these criticisms. There are several holes, giant gaping ones that we can poke in those Obviously, particular yeah. plans. Yeah. Um, right. And <laughs> I think probably the biggest one being that you'd be burning 
massively more fuel to accomplish that trip, which is mm -hmm. its own issue. The expense. You'd also, yeah. in order to get the economies of scale, you'd be assuming so many people would be willing to do that in mm -hmm. order for you to make enough money because by a per person transportation cost, it's astronomically more than planes are now. The only As way right you would now, get yes. there is to fly everybody on these. So are we going to burn massively more fuel and everyone pays more money in order to accomplish this for something that may not be safe on the time scales it would take to launch that right. business. Because in their rocket business, there's a built-in demand. They can make contracts with NASA. There's somewhere to go. But I don't think that there's a, enough R&D built in for them to get the plane part right. I no, expect to not, see Starship fly in space, but the point-to-point -point plane thing, I'm not holding my breath. It's, that's a reach. And, uh, um, and I think many would agree. I agree with you. I think looking at the technology that we have now and I think, you know, maybe they could pull it off in 15, 20 years. I think we'll be on Mars before they can figure that out. Yeah, the key yeah. problem really is is acceleration and deceleration. Because in order to get someone on the point-to-point -point flight, mm -hmm. you have to accelerate them way more than you ever would on a plane flight. Because you have to actually get up to escape velocity, go up into the upper atmosphere, and right. then decelerate yourself from that extraordinary speed, which means even <sighs> more energy to slow down. Mm -hmm. So you're spending all of this massive amounts of energy to get people the same distance when you can get them that same distance over a longer time with less energy. So the economy is just hitting up against a really hard physics problem. So interesting, because I don't think the physics problem is the problem with this. I, I, I don't actually cool. see any technological barrier to Earth point to point. In, in a way that it can be done safely. Well, and I mean, reliably, a cost barrier. And, and, the cost it's, barrier. It's a physics well, cost barrier. Like, why would you spend all that energy? Not can yes. you spend all that energy? Okay, but, you know? but, here, but here's what I'll caution. Yeah. Nobody knows what Starship's going to sell for yet. And yeah. the goal, the goal, the last stated goal from Elon is that that Earth point-to-point -point ticket would be roughly the same that you would pay on an airliner now. Now, he didn't specify whether that was business class or economy plus or you know uh, you know w whatever the other classes i don't know what the classes are i think it depends on the airline but anyway i'm not sure that's the the biggest hurdle i think it's the regulatory aspect of this of getting yeah. all of the federal air, uh, aviation agencies around the world that control all of the airspace on board and comfortable with this i think is the biggest hurdle sure. I, yeah. um i mean look no further than what we're currently seeing right i mean where we're just like a month away from the faa rules changing to make this type of test with starship easier but we're seeing starship advancing so quickly that it's it's advancing quicker than the rules can change so oh I think, yeah i think and, that's and once where you, we're going to hit the biggest issues once you use these for passenger flights you've got to think about what they fly Ooh. over and oh that's yeah a whole, i mean this oh, is yeah. a huge amount of you know, even if you can work it out, it's a huge barrel of fuel. And and I guess my biggest worry from the and I'm worried because I'm not that I'm invested in this <laughs> company, but concern from a from an economic standpoint is that it still just burns rocket fuel one type or another. It burns right. long chain, you know, short chain or long chain hydrocarbon. It mm -hmm. releases from its high pressure chamber. So there's a basic thing of what it's doing that in order to get the price to where it would be reasonable and just like a plane ticket. I'm not really sure what the state, you know, it's like collect underpants and then step two and then profit. I'm not really sure what the, <laughs> what the like thing is where suddenly, because it's not that I fully believe he can do it. And maybe it'll be like the Concord where some very fancy people like have New Year's Eve on two, two different continents or something like that. But I just, unless we have a different propulsion system, 
I'm not sure how you make it cheaper. Where are you saving your money? You know, other than a yeah. massive economy of scale, like all planes get canceled and we got to use. Ja- Jamie, where did you get that underpants reference from? Was that oh, it's from- a South Park reference. Oh, yes. because yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys the underpants gnomes steal no, no, no. his underpants and and then they have no plan so for it. So <laughs> when Elon Musk, when Elon Musk first unveiled Starship, it was called um, ITS, Interplanetary Transport System, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. One of the funding options was stealing underpants literally awesome. he wrote it into the he wrote it into the presentation oh yeah <laughs> no like it's that. great yeah no i was just using a shorthand for having having sort of well, a vague plan but big from. hopes yeah <laughs> and yeah i mean look elon musk has has proven the uh naysayers wrong every step of the way sure whether it be through force of will or shrewd investing or whatever so yeah i i won't i won't bet against them but i'm really wondering how like if you don't have to leave the atmosphere, why would you go through all the effort to to do it? You know, because if you're going to space, you got to go that way. But if I'm just going to France, unless I really got to get there, like I'm the president of France and it's, France is on fire, then I, I don't know. Well, but, but but I mean, I think it that way, to be fair, like space, space is one of the more viable routes in that regard, because it's easy if you can just aim yourself and time your trajectory so that your engine cuts off when you have just the right speed to arc up. And then come back down into the, into the atmosphere at no more acceleration than you would feel on a roller coaster. But I how do you the, stop parachutes? How do you well, land? No, star, Starship, it's just the belly flop and the engine reignition and flip and burn. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I think once they iron out that process, and you know, I have, I'm shocked when I see that belly flop because when I, I was, <laughs> I was, Chris and I yeah. were with Elon when he told us about doing this we were in texas it was a couple years ago and elon was showing us his belly flop and i think i remember a couple of me and chris a couple other people we all looked at each other like they're gonna try that over (laughs) like i'm telling you man it's a real question it's (laughs) like it's like you're spending extra delta v because you're accelerating something more than you have to that's again i keep coming back around to that like Mm. even if it's if it's physically easier it's still more fuel than you need to spend to get something from point A to point B. And, and if, at, at an, a, in a business, you're always going to come back. Like the airline businesses run on the price of fuel. So right, why would, but, how would he exempt himself from that? Ah, because you can literally on these ocean platforms that they're talking about building, put oxygen and, and, and scrubbers to pull all of this fuel out of the air and just make it right there. And then you don't buy it from anyone. Oh, oh Chris. Well, okay. I mean that. Yeah. Since <laughs> because, because this, and, and no, Jamie, but this, but this is really important because I want, I want to, I want to sort of bring this full circle because this is how it works. You're asking all the right questions because it's what we have to do on Mars, right? We can't buy right, methane yeah. and oxygen on Mars. Yeah. We have to pull it out of the atmosphere and make it. Well, you and there's an experiment there right now, by the way. Right. We yeah, just exactly. sent a super cool experiment yes. yeah, <laughs> to see if we can make some oxygen passively. Ah, that would be so rad. So, so <laughs> why can't you do it on these floating barges? And ocean platforms. So and the I don't know. You can. That, that could be. That, yeah. That's how they do it. Yeah, that's if how you, this is economical. Yeah. If, yeah. If you get the energy to be, I know nothing is free in this world, but right. to be essentially free, at least vertically integrated or from a source we haven't discovered or from a better source of, of the same fuel, then this becomes like entirely, as you said, it's just a physics and safety problem at that point, <laughs> which might be too much, but you know. Right, right. Yeah, that, it's, uh, it's like, I mean, yeah, at that point, it's it's just do you trust it enough to be going at a deadly speed until literally the last moment the last moment from these propulsive landings yeah. i mean which sounds amazing it sounds pretty fun if you believe now, it <laughs> chris you brought up these platforms um yeah. nsf 
was the one that you guys discovered the uh, the platforms that SpaceX had purchased. I think it was Jack Bayer and Michael Baylor confirming all the paperwork and you guys did mm-hmm. such great reporting on that. Tell us a little bit about what you guys discovered over at NSF. So they SpaceX purchased these two sea-based oil platforms. Yeah. Right? Mm. They've already put some names and stuff on them. But <laughs> SpaceX, I think Michael Baylor discovered that SpaceX had purchased through some subsidiary an energy company. Is that is that fair to say? <laughs> so there, there's, yeah, so there, 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 there's a lot of moving components to this, right? right? Yeah, you know, like of, of how these were built, or no, sorry, how, how these were purchased. Um, it wasn't like we just found and the deed of sale is to SpaceX. <laughs> you know, it's no, through a um, bunch of weird. It, it was yeah. through a bunch of subsidiaries, yeah. and uh-huh. uh, you know, to, like to, Disney. To, to hey, um, oh, no, seriously, that's how they bought yeah. up Florida. But but, but no, su- su- super proud of the team and, and Michael and Jack for that because yeah, but but basically yeah, it's not just the oil with the old oil platforms. There's a, there's a other company involved in this too, which makes mm-hmm. sense when you look at the energy right. production needs that are going to be needed in Boca Chica and on these platforms, like we were just talking about, Jamie, with the fuel needs, right, for for this vehicle because this vehicle is massive. It's not just the Starship we've seen. There's also a booster, which is. Right. You've only seen half times of the starship. its size. <laughs> like I'm reminded of this. Oh my god! You've only seen half of the starship. Have I know he's nowhere the near this. Half of it's it. like <laughs> it makes you think. Like, okay, wait a minute. What is the compression strength of steel? You like how high can you build this before it collapses? I know it's yeah. He's he's of course nowhere near this. Skyscrapers exist, but it's the type of thing where if if you're thinking that if that's hollow, how can you put it together without pressurizing it? And, right. you know, I can see the answer in these photos that Devin yeah. has taken, but. But, but in a lot of ways, what, what these, um, what these um, ships mean is that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Starship operations are the, at the level and the speed that they want these to occur at, right? Where we're talking about the potential to reuse the Starship three times a day. You know, that's a lot of noise impingement on national wildlife areas in and around Boca Chica. That's a lot to ask the local population to deal with i mean imagine if you had multiple rocket launches going off every single day like i know a lot of us would be thrilled and i'd be like sign me up but if you're trying to sleep at two o'clock in the morning and one of these needs to launch on a mission that that's a lot to ask especially if you've already done eight that day right so the goal is basically to launch them from these platforms and do a lot of their operations from there but still build them on land and then launch them from land to the, to the platforms to then be used for their missions, which is really cool. So, uh, but, but it's, a, it's an integral part of what they're looking for too, because as well, the earth point to point is not, you know, coming down in at JFK airport or Ronald Reagan international in DC, it's coming down many kilometers offshore safe away from major population centers, but close to those major population centers and then being ferried to land. And these platforms, types of platforms will help with that. So expect many, many more of these to be bought um, as this Um, program develops. There's also the emissions question of whether people are going to accept, you know, as if this expanded dramatically, whether people would accept that much, you know, I don't have a really good ballpark on how many of these would be happening and 
how how that all balances out. But again, I did a quick Google here, and it says that one a typical SpaceX launch, obviously there's a lot of variability, is about sixty cars driving for a year. Ah, so we need to know? make an important distinction here. So the Falcon Nine and the Starship use different fuels, so their pollutant levels are going to be different. Um, totally, and I'm, that's yeah. why there's a lot of hand waving going on. Yeah, but we know yeah. that it's going to be a lot i mean you can't re- you can't really burn these things in a in a completely clean way and so ultimately we're going to be releasing these into the atmosphere and blah blah blah. how does the math work out and it may very well at the end of the day not be so bad but certainly giant plumes of rocket exhaust even though a lot of it's going to be water vapor could have a political impact it could so i i would really encourage people to go look at um tim dodd everyday astronaut video um he did, a he, video he about, did yeah. exactly this yeah. about how rockets pollute and the answer is kind of surprising because while methane and oxygen aren't the best because they still output pollutants i mean the actual best would be burning hydrogen and oxygen because literally your only byproduct is water right at that right. point but a byproduct a large byproduct of methane and oxygen is also water so sure, yeah. it's not the worst but it is a good question and i don't know the answer off the top of my head but tim dodd did a great video on this and remember yeah. tim's dodd's videos his numbers are 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 good but we'll never have the the but precise changed measure and the yeah. things yeah, have it's, it's well. all going to be moving targets and right. ultimately it becomes it all becomes conversion questions mm-hmm. because it, my question really wouldn't be and obviously i'm saying like let's go to space let's launch all the rockets the trade-off is going to be worth it for a long, long time, we would have to be launching so many rockets for the trade-off in human achievement and knowledge right. not to be worth, you know, the fractional right. difference. But we well, think if we convert massive segments of transportation to rockets, is that better or worse? It, it, and it's, I think that's a really open question. I don't think that pessimism about like, oh, this many belching out all this stuff is necessarily bad if it leads down the road to different right. efficiencies. Well, and, and I think a good point to that, too, is, you know, you, you, you also can think of the balance, too, right? Because it's not just how much does it put out, it's how much does the system net put right. out. What's because, the if net? Right. Yeah. because if you're pulling a bunch of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to make oxygen and methane, but only a portion of that is being put back exactly. out as carbon dioxide, well, your net effect might be more positive than the system would lead you to believe because of how you produce that fuel to begin with. Right. Totally. And, and yeah. again, I also believe that we need to take into account not only because I think that absolutely is something that people tend to ignore is that there's a beginning of the chain and it doesn't start right. when your gas tank is full, like the, something had to make the gas, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's not the start of that yeah. chain in the same way that like the water cycle is a whole cycle. But I think there's also the idea that particularly with rocket science, the achievements that we make by spending those emissions can often lead to extravagant gains in the future like yes. where would our battery technology be if we had not launched rockets where would our you know engine efficiencies of normal uh, internal combustion engines be if we hadn't done xyz rocket science so i think there's also something in the equation where like what is the per rocket gain on the long curve of just us getting better at spending energy exactly yeah so Love it. is starship sn10 gonna land are we gonna? Have- <laughs> I mean, look, my, if I was gonna, if I was a betting man and I was betting right now, I would say no. I bet they land within three. But I would not say this I would say not this one. I would say not ten. I would say whatever comes after ten. 
I want I it to know. be 11. 13 just for the sake of it. But I don't know. Oh, I think... you're going to hate this, Jamie. There is no SN13. There's no 13. Why? There is no Starship 13. Why? Oh, no. Uh, they, they scrapped 12, 13, and 14 because yep. the design changed so much with 15 that it wasn't worth continuing their builds because they were already obsolete. Oh, so it's going to be... They're going to skip gonna a be? few. Yeah. They're going to so build gates. Gonna go 10, 11... <laughs> Booster number one, which will be BN1, and then oh, Starship no, 15. We're going, to, we're going from oh, Windows XP doing, to Windows 10. This is Space Shuttle all over <laughs> again, man. This is Space Shuttle, man, because Space Shuttle numbers don't make no damn sense either. No, But no, no, all right, no fine. Well, that disappoints me because I like the anti-superstition nature. <laughs> yeah. of Starship 13 hey, is the one that lands. <laughs> But at least it didn't have anything to do with superstition yeah, yeah. this yes, time. Yes, <laughs> actually good. That does make me happy because every, yeah, that would be, that would be annoying because um, I feel like the opposite, we should do it. If we're going to be superstitious, we should be naming more of them that to honor <laughs> yeah. the fact that we figured that shit out on that mission. And it's you just know, 13 and then it's 13 A, 13 B. Because you don't need, you don't need luck when you're launching. You need luck after things blew up. So right. that was a lucky mission yeah. when you think about it, you know? Yeah. All right. We got a couple more items on the list, um, but we are running out of time. So let's do some quick updates. Starliner is now have been pushed to early April with a risk of it being moved again. Right, Chris? Yes, I have heard the early April thing. Mm. Um, I know people have talked about how weird the one-week adjustment is. Personally, I have not heard anything about a delay from here. But again, wouldn't surprise me given how busy the station's schedule right. is also, at time um, of year. Also, the Starliner schedule has been affected by the power outages in yes. Texas. And there was an incident during transport where... Something got damaged. They weren't super clear about it. But we do know as of today, there's been two movements on that schedule. Mm -hmm. They've only been a week and a few days. So we'll keep an eye on that. Supercluster reporter Alexandra Holden is heading down to cover that mission for us. Chris, you were at the last Starliner. I was down there. Yes. Um, we There's a podcast episode about our experience. I will try to share that one under this one when we post it out. It was not a pleasant experience overall, and we all know how that mission uh, ended. That's why we're redoing it. Um, so, yeah, lots to unpack there. We'll do another episode. For Blue Origin, who I'm, I'm repping today, yes. um, they didn't get any money from the military to build New Glenn the way, or the way they wanted to build it on their timeline. So I purchased a Blue Origin shirt to hopefully help that along. Um, not, I'm not okay. I'm making fun of them a little bit. I like but that. Listen, they had they had like nine billion nine hundred ninety nine thousand. Know, <laughs> exactly. Like we can't buy the spaceship. We need we need twenty more dollars. And then it, their little right. sales thing went. Boop, also, bing, right. and then, yeah, for <laughs> your order. So, so, I, was, I was gonna say, but if that was a Simpsons episode, like the vending machine would have gone. Like, <laughs> oh right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. And then he clicks origin. order on the yes. Amazon <laughs> spaceship <laughs> order page. Yeah. Um, funny enough, when I ordered this shirt, the Shirt was $20.99 and shipping was $10. Now, correct me if I'm mm. wrong. I thought the shipping might be a little bit more reasonable considering that the guy who builds this company yeah. is also the shipping god. So I don't Seriously. know how that works. Um, but anyway, <laughs> New Glenn, the reason, so New Glenn, their, their heavy rocket, which is, has been in development for a few years. They've built the rocket factory down at Kennedy Space Center. This first launch of New Glenn has been pushed to 2022. Their reasoning for this is because they did not win a military contract to develop New Glenn, which comes with a lot of money. 
So that set mm. them back a little bit. Gotcha. Um, how do you, Bezos has, he doesn't have any money, right? Kind I mean, a, he's the poorest dude, man on right? the planet. So <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. We just wanted to update Supercluster listeners on those two missions. We'll can do I separate ask, episodes um, unpacking what those problems are. Can I ask what might be a dumb question? Is the new Glenn name? Is that John from yes. John Glenn? Yes. Is that and they, Shepherd gotcha. is Alan Shepherd. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Not and, a dumb. And, not a dumb question. Um, no. And, most people fact, don't know they, that. Yeah, because they named their suborbital vehicle Shepherd because his flight was the first American first. suborbital, uh, and yeah. then they named Glenn for the totally. first orbital. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we wish the best to Blue Origin. We hope that you know we kid about them, but hey, SpaceX had delays too. Everyone had delays. We just have to get, you know, give them the opportunity to fix whatever issues they're having with New Glenn. Of course, um, yes. The last thing I want to talk about today is an amazing story written by Chris himself for uh, NASASpaceFlight.com. <laughs> it's about Planet Nine, something that really yeah. drives... Okay, there's a lot of issues. <laughs> the, the article is coming from inside the podcast. <laughs> right? <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot of... Look, there's a lot of arguments. Opinions. Right? There's a lot of opinions, a lot of arguments on various things right now in space, some of which I get involved in, you know, Starship, Mars. We're always arguing about these things, Moon. But there's this also a pocket of folks in our community that talk about this elusive Planet Nine. Oh, Chris, yeah, yeah. Hmm. take it from there, buddy, because I am not getting into this part. <laughs> <laughs> Make us believe. <laughs> I, w- I will happily wait into this. This is one of my... Um, so outside of, of rocketry, one of my absolute favorite areas is astrophysics and what's going on in various things out there, uh, various places out there. Um, And Planet Nine is definitely one of them. I I think I start that article by saying, basically, you'd have to have been under a rock to have missed this lively conversation over the last five years. (laughs) But basically, it boils down to the fact that in the early 2010s, about a decade ago, as we were looking for these objects that are beyond the orbit of Neptune, called trans-Neptunian objects. And Mm. there are different classes of them. And one class is extreme trans-Neptunian objects. So not so basically Uranus or sorry, Neptune is at 30 astronomical units from the sun. And these things are at like 35 as in their closest approach, right? Right. And a couple hundred times Earth orbit. Exactly. Exactly. 30 some thought. Yeah, because an AU is roughly the average orbit of Earth. So 35 times that distance. And Basically, as we kept finding them, we noticed that some of them were oddly clustered together in terms of the point in the sky where they came closest to the sun and the direction that their orbit is aimed at. Mm-hmm. And that's a little odd because that the chance of that happening naturally is like 0.2%, or it's happening randomly, I should right. say, not naturally. Right. And one of many theories that was put forth to explain this was a planet about 10 times Earth mass out there in the outer solar system, way, way, way out beyond that. So, you know, Neptune is 30 times the distance of Earth. These extreme trans-Neptunian objects come as close as like 38 to 40 times that distance. And this planet comes as close as like 200 times Earth's distance and goes as far out as like 1,200 times. Oh, that's yeah. sorry. That was the distance I was talking about earlier. Yes. With a couple hundred. Yeah, yeah. Is how yes. far it would have to be. Yeah. Yes, ex- exactly. Yeah. But the cool thing about the planet is when they kept looking at the planet part of that theory, they realized that hey, there are these four other things that are strange in the outer solar system. That if we plug Planet Nine into the solar system equation, it explains them, oh. and it explains them really well. 
we'll get to those other three in a minute because there's there's more things we're finding and there's more debate out there. But I, I want to focus first on those extreme trans-Neptunian objects grouped together right. because they are the objects in the far out parts of the solar system that are the easiest to find because they come the closest. And the closer something comes to the sun, the brighter it gets and the easy it is for us to find it. So there's this question about, well, are we just finding all these things in this clustered little area because we found something there? So now we have a predilection to just go back there and keep searching for things because we know we're going to find something. Mm. And actually, they're not clustered. If you looked at the entirety of the sky, you would see it's actually fairly uniform. Right. It, yeah. Is it your and, fishing hole or is it just <laughs> yes. there's fish in the ocean, man? You exactly. Know? Yeah. So two weeks ago from when we're recording this, a paper came out from Kevin Napier and a bunch of other scientists. So the paper is called, uh, the paper is called Napier et al. Mm -hmm. And the paper is titled, No Evidence for Clustering in Extreme Trans-Neptunian Objects, which would seemingly put the nail in the coffin for right. Planet Nine. Right. Except, unfortunately, the title kind of doesn't really give away what the actual analysis showed. They weren't actually trying to find clustering because the surveys they were analyzing weren't strong enough to detect that clustering if it existed. At most, what they could say is, are all of the objects that we have found in the entirety of the outer solar system, right? Are those finds valid and can we confirm them? That's basically all it said. And in that analysis said, you know, and with all the other things that we found since the last analysis was done on this a couple of years ago, your case for clustering basically goes from it could happen randomly at 0.2% to 2%. So it weakens the argument for clustering just a little bit, so but doesn't blow it Mike, out of the water like it, like the headline claimed. Right. I so saw Mike still... Brown's Twitter. He did a Twitter thread about this yes. analysis and I saw that. Did you talk to Mike? I did not talk to Mike, um, but I did talk to Kevin Napier from Napier okay. at All. I yeah. talked with Mike's um, partner in this Planet Nine search, uh, Constantine Batigan. He was right. wonderful to talk to. Legendary. And talked, yeah. Yes. And I <laughs> talked with, uh, her name is Juliet Becker. Um, she's a, a 51 Pegasi B fellow at Caltech who's working on some of these things in the outer solar system as well. But, but basically, the reason we paid so much attention to that was because it was like, oh, well, that's the thing that Planet Nine is connected to. So if the case is weakening for that, clearly... That must weaken the case for the overall planet. But there are three other things that this theory rests on. One of them are these, uh, uh, some of these objects in the outer solar system are also weirdly inclined in ways that they had to have some kind of an interaction with some pull, some friction gravity. with a big body. Right. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And, in, and they're inclined in ways that you wouldn't expect that from just like a passing star nudged something. Right. It indicates there's a gravitational force coming from a very large object. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So basically, the roundup of this, and what and when I was talking with Constantine and uh, and Juliet about this, is you know the things we see out there and things we keep finding in the outer solar system. When you plug them into the Planet Nine model, they still work overall. Obviously, the more and more things we find and we can put into that model, the clearer the picture will be. Right. But nothing that has been found so far in the past five years is like a smoking gun. No, no definitive answer. Right. Can you? But um, also no smoking gun that it exists either, because when you talk to all these people too, the first thing they'll say is, yeah, the math is telling us that it should exist, but it might be seven random coincidences and we just won't know until we find more and more bodies out there. Yeah, because right. <laughs> that's kind of the, the, the natural question it leads to is what are the primary obstacles preventing us from seeing the dang thing? It's a big planet. You've <laughs> yes. seen all the other planets. 
and it's really big one. Uh, it might be kind of far away, but we've seen far away things before. So exactly. You know. <laughs> so here's the thought experiment to that, Jamie. So the planet Neptune is really, really dim in our mm. sky. You can't see it with the naked eye. But if you have binoculars, if you have a telescope, you can see it, but it's still really, really dim. This sucker, if it exists, is like a hundred thousand times dimmer than uh, Neptune. Okay. And yeah. here's the kicker. When you look up at the sky, the place that we have to search for is right against our galactic plane. Uh, mm. So, so you're bright. also yeah. looking yeah. at very thick areas of the galaxy and light yeah. pollution. Exactly. Yeah. So the odds of the telescope that they're using right now to find it, actually finding it, dwindling. They're about halfway through the search. There are much more powerful observatories coming online uh, later this year. The Vera Rubin Observatory, which yeah. should be able to find it. Intriguingly enough, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite from NASA and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology could become instrumental in helping to find it because a survey that it's going to do later this year will cover the portion of the sky mm. that Planet Nine is supposed to be. And TESS is sensitive enough that we might actually be able to, grab, <laughs> to grab it if right. it passes, if it occults another star. Man, I basically. love the idea. <laughs> I love the idea that some relatively tiny number of photons could confirm the existence of an entire world. You know, and that's like we get a couple little blips yep. and we're like, it's there. It must be there because there's no other explanation that checks yep. all these boxes. And we're just waiting yep. for that. Chris, do we have a name ready for this planet? No, we do not. Okay, um, uh, we know a couple go. marketing agencies we can hire for that. Yeah, uh, it's not, <laughs> it's not so, Planet X. I have heard before. Don't call it Planet X. That that's wrong. We need good I branding don't know why, for this but planet. Apparently so, yeah. so in in the in the actual literature, Planet Nine and Planet X are interchangeable. Right. Um, oh, okay, right. Be, but yeah, is the public the prefers Pluto? not. Planet yes, X doesn't part, mean it's yeah. part of the Pluto, Pluto thing. Yes. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So Planet aren't... X doesn't mean Planet Ten. It just means Planet no. X. Exactly. X. Could have meant Planet Ten back when we had would have had yeah. that many. Exactly. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So now it's now it's just X, the um, X. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. If if it actually exists, Mike Brown has said that he ha uh, he and Constantine do have a couple of names in mind because as the discoverers, whoever discovers it are the ones that get to put forward the name for mm. approval to the International Astronomical Union, but the right. International Astronomical Union has to approve it. It's got to um, so fit. They, so, so they can't name know. it Mike's Planet. Um, yeah, it's got to um, fit so the wait, list. you got to have yes. some <laughs> sort of stylistic consistency wait, to it. Can't it would be, be a like god. Yeah, Neptune it would be named after Pluto a god. And yeah. Jared, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. We do not want Jared, no. Um, no. But uh, <laughs> so Mike Brown, he's the guy that killed Pl Pluto, wasn't he? <laughs> His oh, Twitter he's trying handle. to redeem so, himself. Now. No, so his, his Twitter handle is Pluto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, if I can find a new planet, they'll forgive me so, for getting rid so of the this, old one. Yeah. So, Mike, I love you. I own your book. It's on my bookshelf. You killed us a planet. You took a planet away from us. And now you're trying to shove another one down our throats. Yeah. So I, th I think what Mike would argue there, and I'd be remiss after talking with Constantine if I didn't say this too, <laughs> um, <laughs> is it's not so much that they took a planet away from us as it is they illuminated our understanding of what Pluto was <laughs> and right. also just so happened to potentially stumble across one that's bigger than Pluto and True. would mm. actually be the gravitationally dominant thing in its area, which yeah. is the mm. final third category Pluto doesn't meet for planethood. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. Although I think, I think gravitational. So Pluto was just basically overvalued. a satellite. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. But I got to say it, though, it, 
For a non-planet, Pluto sure gets more press than any other one. So hey, it, should know, right? it should be happy. It's you <laughs> hey, know, it's in our you... public consciousness, unlike any other non-planet. Well, and and I mean, it's got to feel special because Ceres, the the asteroid in the solar in the asteroid belt, mm-hmm. was the same as Pluto for a long time. It was mm-hmm. considered a planet, and right. then we wow. started to find the other asteroids and went, oh it's part of something much larger, except there wasn't like the upheaval of Demokia. Oh yeah, like, nobody cares about when, Ceres. When Actually, we said that, literally you, the same right. thing about Pluto. And it Dude, was just you, like, you, just, you have just minted a new t-shirt idea or patch idea. It's gonna be called Nobody Cares About Ceres. And it's gonna have a little picture, <laughs> it's gonna have a little picture of Ceres and it's gonna say around it, Nobody Cares About Ceres. And that's gonna be our way of promoting it. I love that Isn't story. Isn't that one yeah. of the mining spots in um, that show? The expanse, the expanse. It's one of the critical areas. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, one, yeah, book yeah. One. yeah. Well, I guess they care about series. They care yeah. about series. Yeah. So but they nobody cares about series. <laughs> actually, but actually in the series, nobody who doesn't live on series cares about series. Oh, in yeah. The right. series. Exactly. Cool. Ah, like. yeah. yeah. Well, we can uh, cross promote with them then. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Chris, how do people read this article of yours? Is I I found it really enlightening because I don't, you know, when you cover space, you you gotta pick the things to live exist in your mind um yes. the planet nine drama is something i can't get into yet because i'm starlink starliner all the star stuff starship yeah you know how do people read this article um, what's the headline of it yeah so um from what i've heard from the people who have, who have reached out um, everyone seemed to really love it um mm-hmm. napier Kevin, constantine and juliet all really appreciated the work but yeah it's over on uh, nasaspaceflight.com it is if you if you just search planet nine you will find it but it is called searching for planet nine and where new research fits into the overall theoretical debate of a hypothetical planet there you go <laughs> Nice. Everyone's using the longer headlines now. We got to get into that, Jamie. We had we had David W. Brown on the show. It yeah. took him like ten minutes just to say the title of his book. Oh yeah, yeah I had to, I had to I read the title, and then at the end, I read it really fast. Jamie had to like I perform the title. He had to perform it, yeah. which was awesome. Yeah, um, but fun. anyway, Chris, thank you for being on the show. Jamie, thank you for being on the My show. Pleasure. Obviously, we have a lot more to discuss, so maybe we we get back at it soon. Some stuff coming from Supercluster. We talked earlier about. When is Dragon leaving the station? Who's on station? Mm-hmm. When? Which spaceships are there? Well, Supercluster has a new app coming. Oh, hey. We're, we're, we're all going to tease it a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been hard at work in the utilities yeah. closet making right. new machines and the computers for y'all. So we, uh, we're, we're going to be releasing a new utility that will help every everyone, including the three of us, mm-hmm. uh, be better space fans. Um, having things at a glance, having information at a glance is really important. Knowing what's going on in orbit whenever you want is something we really strive for. So um, stay tuned because we're going to be beta testing over the next week. And then we'll hopefully be dropping that app for you guys the next week. Um, yeah, you know, we've got, uh, it's, it's that double meaning question. We want to tell you what's up in space, but also what's up in space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so thank you for tuning in and we will be back hopefully next week with some better news on starship and crossing our fingers that it does indeed land and not blow up that's how that's the note we're gonna end this on i'm gonna i'm gonna give a sign off just so we don't have to be pessimistic uh as always make sure that, that you visit supercluster.com for more great space stories across all media and as always remember space is for everyone thank you everyone 